You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Welcome everyone. My name is Jimmy Young and it's a great pleasure to have you here this morning. We're going to be working through the chapter of Romans chapter 6. A great chapter filled with God's promises and blessings upon us. Let me start like this. Alexander the Great was a wonderful, mighty military ruler. He conquered much of the known world in his day. And one time he was out on a campaign and couldn't sleep. So he he woke up and decided to do a bit of a tour of the place that they were staying, of the encampment. And he happened to find a soldier who had fallen asleep on lookout. Now, at those times, that falling asleep on lookout was a punishment. It was punishable by death. He put everyone's life at risk. So he roused the soldier and said, Who are you? What is your name? And and the soldier meekly replied, Alexander, my, my name is Alexander. And Alexander said, who are you really? And, and the soldier replied again, Alexander, my, my name is Alexander. And they went at this back and forth in over a little while. And in the end, Alexander the Great replied to him, change your name or change your behavior. It's a, it's a great line, the killer line. Change your identity, change what people call you, or change your behavior. There's just one problem, that what we do flows from who we are, that our identity drives our actions. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but I was once told that the ultimate test of character is what you do with the shopping trolley when you're done with the shopping. Because almost everyone says that returning the shopping trolley is the right thing to do. No one says that's a wicked, evil thing to do, that you're cast out of the kingdom because you return your shopping trolley. No one says that. It doesn't cost you very much. So what do you do at the end of your shopping? Ever since I heard this, when I finished my shopping, in the back of my head is, you're a good person, return the shopping trolley. I want to see myself as someone of character and it drives my actions to return the shopping trolley. It's because who we see ourselves as, what we see as our identity, drives the way we live, the way we act, our behaviours. It drives our actions. So the natural question is, who are you? Who are you? There's a number of different ways that we could answer that question. We could go to the most base level. We are humans living on earth. We are male and female. We live in Australia, Victoria in 2021. We could define ourselves by our names as Jimmy, as Sam, as Christina, as Rashan, as Bevan, or as anyone watching. We could define ourselves by what we do as pastors or tradies or worksmen or university students we could define ourselves by where we came from or where we come from our ethnicity our culture our experiences our nationalities we could define ourselves as what we love our families our friends our our partners our wives our husbands our kids 
And those are all deep and important shapers and formers of who we are. But by themselves, they don't actually drive us to live Christ-like lives. It doesn't necessarily change your Christ-like action if you're a university student versus a tradie. It doesn't necessarily change the way you follow Jesus. Who are we? Last week we heard from Sam in Romans chapter 5. He mapped out these two great realities that every single person is either in Adam or in Christ. They are in Adam in the realm of death and disruption and disobedience or they are part of Christ, in Christ, in the realm of grace and life. And you can almost imagine them on a map. They're different corners. On one corner you have those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And it's a worthwhile question asking, where are we? Where are we? Do you see yourself maybe in the middle of the map, somewhere between Adam and somewhere between Christ? Or perhaps, depending on how your obedience has gone that day, how well you're following Jesus, you might feel a little closer to being in Christ or perhaps a little bit closer to being in Adam. Well, Paul actually says that if you're a Christian, there's only one place you can possibly be. You're not halfway. In fact, throughout Romans 6, he says it like this. He describes Christians this way. In verse 3, he says, Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? In verse 4, he says, We have been buried with him by baptism into death. In verse 5, he says, we have been united with Christ. In verse 6, he says, we've been crucified with Christ. In verse 8, he says, we've died with Christ and we live with him. There's only one possible place where a Christian can be, according to Paul, and that is in Christ, with Christ, into Christ. There's no halfway nationality. Our identity is in Christ. Christ in Jesus. That is the primary way we should identify ourselves as being in, with, into Jesus. And he says as much in verses 3 to 4, he says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Now, Paul is using this provocative picture of baptism, not because he says that it's baptism alone that brings you into that, but that he's using it sort of as a visual shorthand for a Christian. That back then there probably wasn't anything that existed like an unbaptized Christian. If you were baptized, you were a Christian. If you were a Christian, you were baptized. And, and so he's sort of using this as shorthand for all the people who follow Jesus. 
saying, if you follow Jesus, you've been baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death, been buried with him, in the same way that in baptism we go under the water to signify dying with Christ and we come out to signify being raised to life. He says the same thing has happened to all of us for real. Our identity is with Jesus. He's using this illustration not to say something deep and profound about baptism per se, although that is in there. He's mostly drawing out that we have been united with Christ, that we, are, that we have this union with Jesus, that what is true about Jesus is also true about us, that just as Jesus died, we have died, that just as Jesus has been raised to life, we have and will be raised to life. Our identity is those who have been united with Jesus. And once he says that, what does he end with? So that we too may walk in newness of life. Once we understand who we are, that's when it flows into what we do. Identity precedes action. Once we understand who we are, who God has created us to be, what Jesus has won for us, that's what shapes us to live in obedience to him. So here's a little bit of a thought experiment for you. Imagine that tomorrow morning you woke up and felt in your heart that you are no longer a Christian anymore. What would change? What would be different about your life? Have a think for for 10, 15 seconds. What would be different? The first answer for most people would be, well, I probably wouldn't go to church anymore. Right? I'd free up some time on Sundays. But what else would change? What about the mirror image of that? What if tomorrow morning you woke up and discovered that belonging to Jesus had become your core identity? That all these other ways of identifying yourself had become secondary? What would change? What would be different? Now, if you answered anything to those, that if, if you were no longer Christian, a lot would change, that if, that if following Jesus had become your primary identity, then a lot would change too. What you're saying is that identity drives action, that it's our identification with Jesus, our union with Jesus that drives our actions. So many of us ask the question, why can't I change? Why can't I break the power of this particular sin? Why can't I be more like Jesus? And sometimes I just want to gently suggest that perhaps it's because of the way that we see ourselves. That we don't see ourselves as in Jesus, with Jesus, into Jesus. And we live out of these other identities. And it shapes our actions. See, if we locate ourselves in Christ Jesus, our identity is in Him, it leads to Christ-like actions, Christ-like behavior. It's identity first, then obedience. And Paul wants us to have Christ-like action. He's very concerned about that. 
He just wants us to know where our identity is first. If you were following on last week, you would have heard in Romans 5.20, Paul say this line, Law came in with the result that the trespass, that sin multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so part of what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 6 is answering some allegations that people might have about Paul's idea of grace. That if people are in Jesus, if they're under grace, that they're free to do whatever they want. Whatever sin they want to do, whatever comes to mind, they're free to do because they've been forgiven. And Paul says, no, no, no. Because if you're in Jesus, if you have this new identity, you don't even want to sin. Why, why would you? We're not just free from the penalty of sin, we're free from the power of sin. In particular, this works out, is mapped out in two distinct areas. Where we make our homes and who we make our master. Where we make our homes and who we make our master. So who we, where we make our homes. Paul says this in Romans 6, verse 1 to 2, anticipating the objection ooh, that, that people would have. He says, what are we then to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? And I particularly love the way that the message, a paraphrase of the Bible, translated it. It says this, what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving. I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? What it's getting at is that sometimes sin can become so comfortable to us, so familiar to us that we don't even recognize it anymore. We make our life there. We build there. We stay in our homes there and we barely even recognize it. And he's saying that cannot be the case for someone whose identity is in Jesus. Jesus died to set us free from not just the penalty but the power of sin. This is not just an us thing. This is something that God's people have struggled with forever. Returning back to sin. Continuing to make their home in evil. This was something that Israel struggled with in the Old Testament. There's these allusions throughout Romans to the Exodus. Well, in the Exodus story, that of Egypt and Moses, we find that Israel has been placed under slavery. It says this, that, that Egypt set taskmasters over Israel to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. And then it says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, they grew in number, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. And if you're familiar with the Exodus story, you know that God led Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, showing them how great and mighty and powerful He is. But there comes a time when Israel wants to return to Egypt. In the book of Numbers, 
It says, all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? It's not that Egypt was better, it was that Egypt was familiar. They had become so familiar with being oppressed in Egypt that they would rather turn back there than continue on with God. And I I feel like this can become something for Christians as well, that a particular sin becomes so familiar to us that not only do we not recognize it, but that's where we build our homes. Something I've, I've, I've recognized that since coming to this church, that one of the most familiar sins for us at St. John's is that of gossip. That an incident happens and rather than confront the person with which it happened to, we get on the phone and we call someone. And then that person calls someone else. And then that person calls someone else until suddenly ten people know and half the church know except the actual person that someone has a grievance against. And it's been such a familiar pattern for us that we don't even recognize it as sin anymore and we can catch it in all kinds of christian labels we can say i just want you to pray for this person i just want you to be aware i don't want to be a busybody, but just just want you to know the bible calls it gossip and in romans 129 it clearly says that that when god hands people over to the desires of their heart Gossip is part of that. One of the, the condemnation he has against the Gentiles is that they are gossips. That rather than following Matthew chapter 18 to go to your brother if you have a sin against him or something against him, they go to everyone else. But it's become so familiar to us that we have made our home there. And really, when it comes to sin, we have two choices. We can repent of our sins or we can repeat our sins until they become familiar. Repent of our sins or repeat our sins. One is making our home with Christ and trusting in His goodness, saying, I don't have, I've, I've sinned, I've fallen short, I need you. The other is making our home in the land of sin. Where have we made our homes? Well, the other thing that Paul is concerned about is not just where we make our homes, but who we make our master. In verse 16, he says something quite provocative. He says that who we obey, we become slaves of. Who we obey, who is our master, is who we are slaves of. He says, uh, the rhetorical question to start the, the, the part is, what then, should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Who do we obey? Now, 
Paul knows that this is a provocative example to become a slave of someone and there's layers of historical meaning and many of us might really just, just strike, that might, be, might strike at our hearts as too much and Paul says as much. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your, limit, your limitations. But that's what obedience to sin is. It's slavery. It has mastered us. And you might very well go and say, well, okay, I'll, I'll work out where my ma- who my master is. I'll work out what are the ways that I've been obedient to sin rather than to Jesus. I'll work harder. You know, as Galatians 5.1 says, I-, I won't put myself under the yoke of slavery anymore, except that's not what Paul says. That's not what Paul says the answer to the problem is. See, in 6 verse 14, he says, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace it's not that we work harder it's that we remember whose we are we have been won by jesus we are under grace and therefore sin will have no dominion over us it's not saying that we will never stumble it's not saying that we will never sin but sin will not be our master because we have been won by jesus our identity drives our ability not to be mastered by sin. This is what verse 22 says. Now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. You have been freed from sin, set free to be with God. And you might have picked up on the provocative way that Paul describes that, enslaved to God. And you could ask, well, how can... How can I be freed from something and then enslaved to someone else? But that's actually biblical freedom. Michael Bird, a noted scholar, he, he, speaks at, he, he, uh, he lectures at Ridley. He says this, Freedom in the biblical sense is not some kind of absolute autonomy. A freedom to do and act as one pleases. It's not the capacity to switch nonchalantly from virtue to vice. But true freedom is to become human by becoming like Christ. To put it simply, Christian freedom is not merely freedom from something. Rather, it is freedom to follow someone. You could put it like this in the language of Romans 6. That freedom... Christian freedom is not merely freedom from sin, but freedom to be with God, to become like Christ, to be the person you are made to be, not mastered by sin, but part of God's kingdom. Identity drives action. Identity precedes behavior. And and I wonder this morning how often you've thought of yourself as in Christ, with Christ, united with Jesus. Because it's very easy to let our experiences shape our identity. We know too well the sins we commit. We know too well the places where sin has become our home. We know too well the places where sin has mastered us. And Paul says, yes, yes, that's important. But you need to know who you are and whose you are. And once you understand who you are and whose you are, that's how you break the power of sin. Not by trying harder necessarily, not by working harder, but by knowing 
whose you are. You are united with Jesus. You are united with him in his death. You'll be united with him in his resurrection so that we may walk in newness of life. So let me encourage you this week, set aside a morning, an evening, sometime this week and write down all the things that God says is true about you because of what Jesus has won. That you're part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that you're kept, that you are sanctified, that that you will be glorified that you're adopted into God's family, that you're saved and redeemed and washed clean, that you're united with Jesus. Write them down, all the things that you can think of and meditate upon them and ask yourself this question. If that is true about me, then how should I live? What should be true of the way that I act? Because it is true. And it changes everything. So let me pray. God, we thank you that our actions don't determine our identities. That it's not what we do that shapes us, but who you say we are. That our identity is received, not achieved. So God, I pray this week that you would give us a greater insight, a greater understanding of what it means to belong to you, what it means to be united with you, that what it means to be included in your death and resurrection. May this be a church whose primary identity is that of belonging to Jesus rather than anything or anyone else. That we don't define ourselves by where we come from, that we don't define ourselves by what we do or who we love, but who we are loved by you. God, set us free. You have set us free. Not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And may we see that in our church. May you break all the ways in which we are enslaved to other masters. May you reveal all the ways in where we've made our home in sinful places. Make us more like your son. Set us free to be with you forever, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.